shortly after Winston Churchill was appointed Prime Minister in the early days of the Second World War, he and many top government officials in Britain plain disappeared. And there was a considerable amount of concern as to their whereabouts. Even many of the top people in the British government were not aware that in the basement of the Foreign Office, just off Whitehall in the centre of London, the war rooms had been built. And that's where Churchill and his other leaders had disappeared to. The war rooms were open to the public, and I had the privilege of going through them. And one of the most fascinating things I noticed there was the broom closet. Usually, I don't find broom closets terribly exciting, but this is a somewhat unusual one in that there were no brooms in it, and there never have been. In fact, inside it was just one telephone. On the outside of the door, it said broom closet, or the equivalent, and everybody working in the place thought that's what it was, except Churchill. This one telephone was his private line to President Roosevelt in the Oval Office. And when things were quiet and nobody else was around, often Churchill would slip into this little broom closet, get on the hotline to the White House. The reason that this was so significant was that in the early days of the war, Britain was totally beleaguered, absolutely standing on her own against the enemy forces amassed in the continent of Europe. The only hope, humanly speaking, for Britain in those days was that somehow or other we could tap into the tremendous resources of the United States of America. And the one lifeline to that was this telephone in the broom closet in the basement underneath the Foreign Office. And that's where Churchill and Roosevelt would speak. It was a great comfort to those who knew it was there. I have good news for you. Many people feel beleaguered in their lives. There is a hotline and you have a closet. And if you will avail yourself of it, you can talk not to the Oval Office, although some of you would like to do that, but you can talk to heaven itself. For the Lord Jesus, in his death and resurrection, has opened a new and a living way into the presence of God, and we have immediate access to him. And When you find yourself beleaguered, when you find yourself lacking resources, the resort is always to prayer. We can find comfort in prayer. Now, as we're going to continue looking into John chapter 17, we come to the beginning of the 17th chapter. The particular emphasis that I want to draw from these verses is this. We see the Lord Jesus praying. We notice, first of all, how instinctual prayer was for him. And we need to learn from that. Is prayer instinctual as far as we're concerned? We notice also the content of his prayer. And we learn to pray as we build our praying on his model. So with that in mind, let me read to you the first few verses of John chapter 17. Jesus had just told his disciples, In the world you will have trouble, but in me you may have peace. So take heart. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For your Father granted him authority over all people, that he may give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence." 
with the glory I had with you before the world began. There are three things that Jesus prays here. Of course, there'll be three things that he prayed. But we're only going to talk about two of them. First of all, he talked about his own position. Secondly, he prayed for the disciples who had gathered with him on that particular occasion. And thirdly, he prayed for those who would believe down through the centuries as a result of the ministry of the early apostles. Let's notice, first of all, how Jesus prays about his own situation. The thing that strikes me immediately is how Jesus, in a crisis situation, and there was no crisis like his crisis now, he is about to go to a cross. In a crisis situation, instinctually, Jesus turns to prayer. Why is that? Because prayer was the most natural means of communication open to him. It's interesting to notice that the opening words of John chapter 17, translated, he looked towards heaven and prayed, should actually be translated, he looked towards heaven and said. It wasn't as if it was a formal praying that he got into. It was a most natural conversation with the Father that he embarked on. That was what prayer meant to him. It was the most natural means of communication in the world. Luke tells us that Jesus frequently withdrew into lonely places in order to pray. We know from Luke also that when Jesus had a specific concern, he would pray about it. So on one occasion, he said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And so now as the Lord Jesus is about to confront the cross, it's obvious what he's going to do. He is going to turn to prayer. And we can learn something about this. Sometimes, when people get themselves into a crisis situation, they get around to praying eventually. Other people, as soon as they find themselves in a crisis situation, would pray automatically. It's the first thing that comes into their mind. Not the last resort, it is the first thing that comes. Why? Because prayer is customary to them. Because prayer is an open line of communication with the Father. Because prayer is the thing that they embark on whenever they have a concern. I don't know if you've noticed this, that when a crisis comes, you can respond to that crisis in a mature way because you prepared for it in advance. Or when a crisis comes, you can react in a panicky way because you are simply reacting to that unique situation for which you have no preparation at all. I've often noticed, as I sit on airplanes, and I spend a considerable amount of my life doing that, how at the beginning of the flight, young people get up and explain to us how we should fasten our seatbelts, what will happen if the oxygen fails, what we should do if the plane comes down in a hurry, where the emergency exits are, and where we can find our life preservers. And I have also noticed that people usually totally ignore what is being said. Worse people carry on their conversations and make it impossible for those who want to hear, to hear. I've often wondered what would happen if you got a crisis situation, and I'm pretty convinced of this, that those who listened to the instructions, those who checked where their life preserver was, those who know how to handle the oxygen, and those who know exactly where the emergency exits are, would respond totally differently from the people who haven't a clue. It would be panic stations. It's exactly the same as far as crisis in life is concerned. Those for whom prayer is the most normal means of communication, those for whom prayer is a customary activity, 
Those who know what it is to relate concerns to the Lord in prayer when crisis comes know exactly how to pray. And those who have not prepared in prayer for crisis will panic and probably have a deep, deep difficulty. Notice, therefore, the resort of Jesus to prayer at this crisis time. Secondly, notice the way he goes about praying. It's rather interesting to to see that the first part of his prayer, he doesn't even get around to specifically saying what he wants. There's a very real sense in which he spends quite a lot of time telling the Father a whole lot of stuff the Father obviously knows. Now, he's not trying to teach the Father, and he's not trying to help the Father remember something he's in danger of forgetting. In actual fact, he is setting the stage in which his prayer can really work. You see, prayer has to be set in a specific context. The context in which Jesus sets his prayer is simply this. He says, Father, you have granted me authority over all people in order that I might give eternal life to people. Eternal life, he says, is not a thing. Eternal life is, in essence, a relationship with God. Eternal life is not something you get when you die. Eternal life is a relationship you enjoy with God here. It's the life of the eternal one, and it takes you right through the grave, and it lasts you throughout eternity. And my task in coming into the world was specifically to give eternal life to people who would understand you can't earn it, but you can receive it as a gift. Now, Father, he says, I have completed the work you gave me to do. That is why I'm praying. He is praying in the context of the purpose for which he came into the world. He is praying in the context of the will of the Father, of the purpose of the Father. His prayer is not simply a response of his own desires. His prayer is a concern that the eternal purposes of God, for which he exists, might be worked out in his life. You've got to get prayer in context. Otherwise, it won't work. You know how important it is that we keep things in context. You remember the story of the man who was walking along a country road with his mule and his dog, and a truck came around the corner too fast and knocked the man and the mule and the dog in the ditch, and all three were severely injured. And subsequently, the man sued the driver of the car for damages, but the defense lawyers tried to show that in actual fact he wasn't hurt. In fact, he had told the driver he wasn't hurt. And so, as they were cross-examining the man making the claim, the lawyers said to him, Is it true that you told my client that you were all right? And the man replied, My mule and my dog and me were walking along the road. Answer the question. Is it true that you told my client you were all right? Me and my mule and my dog answer the question. This incidentally is a great illustration if you have a considerable amount of time left and very little material with which to fill it. (laughs) Your Honor, the attorney said to the judge, would you make him answer the question? No, let him say what he wants to say, said the judge. Thank you, Your Honor. Me and my mule and my dog were walking along the road. This gentleman came around the corner of his truck, knocked us all into the ditch. He then jumped out of the cab holding his shotgun. He went up to my mule, so it was injured, and shot it. He came to my dog, so it was hurt, and shot it. He stood over me holding his gun, and he said, How are you? And I said, I've never felt better in all my life. (laughs) It's important that you keep things in context. 
if you take them out of context, you can make them say whatever you want them to say. Now then, make sure your praying is in context. Now, Jesus shows us how to pray. He doesn't simply pray in panic when crisis comes. He prays as was his custom. He doesn't pray simply on the basis of his own desires. He prays in the context of his understanding of the will and purpose of the Father. Which leads us, of course, to the requests of his prayer. And the requests of his prayer are very, very simple and very straightforward. Request number one, glorify your son. Request number two, in order that your son may glorify you. To glorify the son means, Father, I want to be seen in the reality of my person. I want the wonder of who I am to be clearly recognized. This sounds desperately self-serving, but remember, his concern is that as people see who he is, they will understand the wonder and the glory of the Father. He says, Father, I want you to restore to me the glory I had with you before the worlds were created. This reminds us, of course, that the Lord Jesus was involved from eternity with the Father in the creation of the world. But there came a specific time when he laid aside his glory, assumed our humanity, lived and died and rose again, ascended to the Father in order that we, men and women, might be reconciled to God. The wonder and the glory of his person is seen in this, that he would lay aside all that was his by right in eternity and come to our earth and live in desperate circumstances and be dreadfully abused with us in mind. This shows his grace. This shows the wonder of his mercy. This shows his incredible love. It is his grace and his mercy and his love which are his glory. He has shown his glory down here on earth par excellence in the cross and the resurrection. But he has now the opportunity to go back to the Father and to receive his pre-incarnational glory and to add to it all the glory that accrues to him because of what he's accomplished on the cross on our behalf. So he says, Father, my concern is that people might really see and give credit for all that I am and all that I have done. What a prayer that should be for us today. Our world is full of people who can't see the glory of Jesus. Our society is full of people who do not understand the wonder of his person. They have no clue about the significance of who he is and what he has done. They have little sense of being thrilled with the Lord Jesus. And we need to pray that that will happen in people's hard, cold hearts. But notice that he is concerned that to the extent that he is glorified, the Father will be glorified. Now, those of you who have been catechized, that sounds like a terribly painful medical procedure, but I assure you it isn't. And those of you who have been catechized know what it is. And those of you who haven't, don't worry about it. Those of you who have been catechized will be able to answer this question, and I would like to hear it loudly and clearly from you. What is the chief end of man? Well, I'm glad that we have three Presbyterians here. <laughs> the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, many of you are shy, but many of you didn't know that. You see, if you just listen to what is going on in our society today, 
it would never, never dawn upon you that the whole point of us being here was that we might glorify God. A lot of people think the whole point of us being here is we might have fun. Another, a lot of other people think the whole point of us being here is that we might make a bundle. A lot of other people think, hey, I am here on earth to do my own thing. No, you're not. You're made by God, for God, to glorify God. You say, you mean God is sitting up there saying, come on, glorify me. No. What God is saying is this. You need to understand that if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be. If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be alive and you wouldn't survive. If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have any gifts. You wouldn't have the gift of time. You wouldn't have any energy. You wouldn't produce anything. So if only you could get around to admitting the fact, God, here I am, alive today for no other reason than you created me and you sustained me, and here I am going to work today and I'm going to produce for no other reason than you gave me the ability, you gave me the energy, you gave me the strength, you gave me the gift, and therefore everything that I do is simply a statement of how incredible you are, not how wonderful I am. It is perfectly appropriate for people to understand why they are alive. Jesus understood it. And he said, my raison d'etre, my reason for being, is that I might come into the world and finish the work he gave me to do, which is to make eternal life available to people. What is the reason for you being here? What is the task he's given you to do? Do you have an overriding concern that you might fulfill it, and in the fulfilling of what God had in mind for you, the sheer glory and wonder of God will be manifest in your life. That should be the overriding desire, the overarching concern, and the tone and the context of your praying. Jesus teaches us how to pray as he prays on this occasion. Notice, however, the second aspect of his praying. Jesus prays about his disciples with respect to two specific things. He prays about his disciples and their relationship to the world, and secondly, their relationship to the Word. Three things, particularly, Jesus states about the relationship of his disciples to the world. And let me just refresh your memories here. We talked about the world in this context and we suggested that a good way of understanding what he meant by it would be to say that the world, when he talked about it in this way, is similar to what we mean when we talk about secular society that is fundamentally godless. Not only is it fundamentally godless, it is under the surface anti-God. It may be religious, it may be benign, it may be pleasant, and it will be perfectly happy to be religious and pleasant and benign just so long as God doesn't want to make any difference in their lives. But if God does want to make a difference in their lives, then the latent antagonism will burst out and they will say, I'm not going to do it God's way, I'm going to do it my way. That is the fundamental attitude of the secular society. Now notice three things that the Christian needs to understand in terms of relating to the secular society. Number one, Jesus said, disciples are left in this secular society. Number two, Jesus explains that they are not of this secular society. Number three, Jesus outlines in this passage that he sends his disciples to this secular society. In it, not of it, sent to it. I submit to you that if we can get this nailed down in our own lives we will have got the structure in which we live our Christianity in the world today. 
But I promise you, it's not easy. You see, some people, when they say to themselves, well, here I am in this secular society, this is where I live, so I may as well just throw myself into it. So they live in it and of it. Other people say, well, I'm a Christian now, so I'm not of this secular society, and therefore I must isolate myself from it. So they're neither of it nor in it. So we have some who are in it and of it, and we have some who are neither of it nor in it. Now, the Lord Jesus didn't give us the freedom to decide to do either of those extremes. He said, you are in it, you're not of it, and you're sent to it, which means he has a purpose for us living in secular society, where, first of all, we're distinct from it, but we're committed to do something about it. We're in it, we're not of it, we're sent to it. Do you know what it is in your unique situation to be in the world, but not of the world, and specifically sent to it? If you do, you'll be a prayer. All right. The Lord Jesus outlined the situation very clearly. He said, as far as his disciples were concerned, the world would hate them. He said that the evil one would go gunning for them. But he said there are two things you must bear in mind. Number one, that they belong to the Father. And number two, they will be protected by the name. To belong to the Father means that we're very precious and he cares for us. To be protected by the name means, the name being the revelation of all that God is, we're protected by all that God is. And therefore, we move around our secular society, very much in it, absolutely not of it, committed to go to it, recognizing that we will have difficulties, knowing that the evil one will exacerbate them, confident of the fact that we belong to him, and drawing on the resources of his name. And in the name of Christ, we stand. These are exciting days to be a Christian, anywhere in the world. I think they're going to get even more challenging and even more exciting in America today, and I trust that we'll be producing men and women who know what it is to be in it, not of it, sent it. Notice also that he prays about the disciples' relationship to the Word. He says, now, Father, I would like you, please, to sanctify these disciples of mine. I'd like you to sanctify them for me in the same way that I sanctified myself for them. And the way I'd like you to do it, Father, is please sanctify them through the Word, because the Word is truth. Now, that probably sounds like a lot of gobbledygook, so let me explain it to you. Sanctify means to set apart in a very special way. Jesus said, I sanctified myself for these disciples. I set myself apart in a very special way for them. How did he do that? Well, he sure set himself apart when he stepped out of heaven and down into the womb of Mary. He sure set himself apart when he was prepared to live for 30 years in the boondocks of a tiny little dusty country that was ill-developed in the Middle East. He sure set himself apart in three years' public ministry, and could we ever misunderstand the unique setting apart of Jesus when he went to the cross for us? I sanctified myself for them, he said. I died for them. Now then, Father, in exactly the same way that I set myself apart for them, 
Would you please work on them so that they might be set apart for me? Because in the same way he says that you sent me into the world, I want to send them. Now, when I was sent into the world, he said, I had to be set apart. If I'm going to send them into the world, they're going to have to be set apart. They're going to have to be special. They're going to have to be different. They're going to have to be unique. There's going to have to be something about them that makes them put other people on inquiry. Sanctify them, Father, and do it through your word. Do it through your word, because as the Bible gets under their skin, it will change their priorities. It will change their perceptions. It will change their aspirations. It will change their behaviors. It will make them different people. It will set them apart for me. Up until now, they've been in the world and of it. Up till now, they've simply lived for themselves. Basically, fundamentally, no different from other pagans. But now, they're mine. They have eternal life. Set them apart, Father. Get the Word into them. Get it working in them. Get it changing them from the inside out so that as I was set apart for their benefit, they would be set apart for me through the Word. Oh, listen. When you understand what's supposed to be happening in your life, you should pray. Well, you say, oh, Father, if I'm to be set apart in this secular society, uniquely different, not in it, not of it, but in it, sent to it, set apart by you, how I need to know the impact of your word in the power of the Spirit changing me from the inside out. Oh, Lord, would you please make that happen? When you think about it, an awful lot of praying is necessary. We need to know how to pray when crisis comes because we have already found that prayer is instinctual and habitual. We need to know how to pray because if we're not careful, we can be so wrapped up with our own whims and caprices, we can forget we're here to glorify God. We need to pray if we do ever understand the tension of being in the world but not of it and sent to it. We certainly need to pray if ever we're going to know what it is to be set apart for him as he was set apart for us. I guess the question that comes to my mind is this. Am I affecting the secular society or is the secular society infecting me? Because I would submit to you that if we're not affecting it, it is probably infecting us. Now, if this sounds challenging, it is. But I've got some good news for you. You've got a closet, and you've got a hotline, and you have immediate access to the presence of the Father. And all the incredible resources of heaven are available to you in your position in Christ as possessors of life eternal through the indwelling Spirit and through the Word of God made available to us. Let's make sure we're deriving our resources through prayer. There is comfort through prayer. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we bow quietly in your presence, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would take one thing from this torrent of words and write it deeply on our hearts, just one thing each, so that we wouldn't forget it, we wouldn't ignore it. We wouldn't bypass it or duck it. We would obey it or we'd claim it. I pray for people 
who have never received the gift of eternal life. Who've still got that strange idea they could earn it if they're good enough. Please show them that eternal life is not a thing you get when you die if you're being good enough. But eternal life is knowing the eternal one while you live when you're not good enough. Simply because he gives himself to us as a gift and we're humble enough to receive it. Lord, I pray for people who are ill-prepared for crises because they have never taken the time to discipline themselves in the word and in prayer. And I ask that as the inevitable crises come, they may find themselves prepared in you. Lord, I pray for people who struggle with being in the world, but not of it. Some of them by becoming totally isolated from it and basically irrelevant as far as your purposes are concerned. Others become so identified with it that they're useless to your purposes. And I ask that you would help us know what it is to be in it, not of it, sent to it. Lord, I pray for people who know in their own hearts that something needs to be done to show that they are uniquely set apart for you. And I pray that your word would find a resting place in their hearts. And Lord, we can all pray for ourselves. And I ask that the Spirit of God would deeply impress your word upon us so that we would pray in response. Hear our prayers. In the name of the Lord Jesus. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all this day and henceforth. Amen.